You're listening to Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Because if beer is proof of God's love for us, then coffee is proof of his mercy. Oremus, caffeine, come to my assistance. Put that coffee down. This is not a real episode of The Literature Guys. Coffee's for closes only. There's no topic that we're discussing, and we're not even talking about liturgy the whole time. Are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <laughs> so without further ado, another Coffee Talk episode of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Wherever I go, he goes, my buddy. Oh, I, I my buddy. never had one, but I do remember my buddy. My buddy and me. You know are what you, that is? Are you saying that I'm your buddy? You are. This was a little doll they tried to sell to boys back in the 80s that no mm-hmm. boy wanted. But yeah. It was called My Buddy. I thought those were Cabbage Patch kids. That was, those were around then, too, but My Buddy was the boy doll. Cabbage Patch kids were mostly for girls. I, I used to have the TMNT toys. What's that? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. That was a little old. Those. Yeah, my mom bought me one once, and she bought me like the foot soldier. She bought me like the bad guy. Oh, well, maybe she's like, trying to. Mom, tell you don't even know. Maybe she's trying to tell you something. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. So here we are, coffee talk. You're drinking coffee. I'm drinking flat coke again. Yep, flat coke is. We we got email from somebody. Yeah, about somebody flat coke. asked us, or somebody uh, commiserated with you about carbonation. Yeah, carbonation which is painful. sounds terrible to me. Carbonation it's, is delicious. It's a classic super taster thing. Listen to another coffee talk to know what that means, that the bubbles hurt. Oh, that was the one with Monsignor Dempsey. We talked about that. He mm-hmm. said I had a very sensitive tongue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I was flattered or not when he said that. But flattered? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Coke. So what are we talking about, Jesse? Well, a couple of things. Yes, one. First of all, yes. I don't really like Chris that much. Nobody does. That's so right. I just, we have to get a few of these conversations in here without him. Establish in, that and move on. Interrupting with some intellectual insight. It's just, it's exhausting, <laughs> you know? I just can't do I it. Know, we're all stream of consciousness and he has to come in with dates and mm-hmm. documents. Direct and like quotes. That. Yeah, really. He knows the date and time and year of every important thing that's ever happened in life. Yeah, and he was telling me about some 50th anniversary of some document. You mean the Roman Missal? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's important. Actually. The Missal that we use at Mass every day is going to have its 50th anniversary. So aside from not wanting Chris to be here, yes. Uh, the other thing is we have these new courses. You mean our online continuing education slash personal enrichment courses? Yeah, we haven't named it yet, right? Have we? I think we call them CP or PC. Some, something online. Continuing education, personal enrichment. Sure. Why do we have these? Well, for many years, people said, I love what you're doing, Jesse. That's actually, that sounds boastful, but mm-hmm. it is true. I love what you're doing, DMAC, Liturgical Institute, but I have... Yeah, mostly it's Jesse. But I have 17 children, and I can't come to the campus for three weeks. Do you have anything online? And we said, oh, we don't. But now, we do. Wait, that person had 17 children? Yeah, hey, if you had 17 children, you wouldn't yeah. be here for the summer session. <laughs> yeah, obviously either. have something else to do uh, instead of coming to our graduate program. Right, so. like working on the 18th job. Right. <laughs> but the point is, now you can watch five hours, uh, kind of snippets out of our full you mm-hmm. know, 45-hour semester courses and get one half of a continuing education unit, CEU. Yeah. Which I... Didn't know what that was until we started doing this. But yeah. So if you're a teacher there, yeah. or something and you need to continue your professional development, watch these online. Take a quiz peppered with little jokes in the quizzes too. 
And the idea here is to kind of bridge what we're doing in the everyday classroom and our master's graduate uh, curriculum with kind of the things that pretty much every Catholic should know. Yeah, so every priest under 40 who's lamenting, I wish I had some education for my music director. And every priest over 40. uh, Over 40, under 40. So basically all priests. So over, under, yeah. Now you can have something where people can learn this stuff at a normal, approachable level, change your life. Absolutely. Yep. It changed my life. Did That's, it? And that is not an exaggeration. For the better? Um, sure, let's go with that. Okay. Um, well, you know how you can be, if you know things, then it kind of makes you more miserable because you're like, now I know things. <laughs> Boy, do I know it. Please, <laughs> never ever learn about the liturgy if you want to have a happy life. You talked about this in one of your classes about artists being miserable because they see beauty in a way that other people don't. Well, that's what John Paul II said in his letter to artists. So here's the intro to the Course on Beauty. That is what he said. He said, artists have this vision they see to the perfection of the heavenly future. So if you're a liturgy person, liturgy guy, liturgy gal, liturgy kid, liturgy dog, whatever you Mm -hmm. are, liturgy dog, you have a vision of the (laughs) heavenly future. And that's why you're always upset when dumb things happen to the liturgy. And no, that's why you're always upset that nobody else cares because they don't have that artistic temperament. So John Paul says, hey, artists, be patient with the non-artists because they don't know what you know. And Mm -hmm. hey, if you don't know, be nice to the artist. And liturgiologists, be patient with other liturgists. Well, there you go. If they don't know, now they know. I know. So um, what's great about these courses is that they're a little more formal than this podcast, which is, but not too formal. Yeah, um, nobody's wearing a tuxedo or is anything. Is that a chalkboard? Mm-hmm. Words are written on the board. There are readings given to Words read. are used. That's Words important. Used, yes. Um, but, you know, for example, we've done... A, a podcast episode on, let's say, the liturgical movement. So we can encompass that in one podcast. Well, mm-hmm. now we have a whole class just on the liturgy. Five movement. hours of liturgy fun. So you get you get a little more in depth about the things that we talk about on the podcast. You get them um, more in depth, and you get some of these reference documents that you don't always get through our podcast so either. If you're a pastor. Torture your employees by making them watch these. And if you're an employer, torture your pastor by making him watch these. Yeah, Tell we, all your friends, families. Dennis did uh, his first class on the introduction to the church's documents on music. And Karen, our lovely um, employee here at the Liturgical Institute, had to print out all these documents for the students in class. It ended up being like a thousand pages for each student because it was printing out the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Totally wrong. And Luke, all of Luke's gospel and the apocryphal something or other. Jesse. <laughs> The course is on the documents of liturgical music. Why are you upset that I wanted people to have the document on liturgical music that we were talking about? It was just funny because we were printing all these documents for days and days and days. (sighs) Well, anyway. Anybody out there, be glad that I'm teaching the class and not Jesse, or you wouldn't have the documents that we talked about. You also wouldn't know what you're talking about. But apparently I said something funny in the last one. Oh, yes. You made a meme about This was terrific. I just go into the zone when I teach. The Holy Spirit takes over my body, and I forget everything afterward. But it's you, true. editing the video, caught me say what? Well, I li- first of all, I literally had to stop editing because I was laughing so hard. And then you were not in the office. I think you were teaching or in a meeting or something. So I, ma- I made this quick meme of a quote, which I will make the, tit- the uh, title image of this episode because I mm-hmm. think it's hilarious. Anyway, it's also a good band name. You'll see why it is, it is a good band name. But basically, we were talking about some, being something. Something is beautiful if it's what they're doing in heaven, and so well, you, the liturgy is beautiful when it reveals its ontology, which is heavenly by nature. Right. right. So you said, 
for um, is would it be beautiful in the liturgy to be doing naked cartwheels down the aisle? And then you said, well, I don't think they're doing naked cartwheels in heaven. But if they are, they'd be doing them perfectly. Absolutely. <laughs> right. But I liked the logic there because you didn't stop at something just being ridiculous. You analyzed it and said, well, you know, well, it sounds ridiculous, but if it, is, if it is ridiculous, it's perfectly ridiculous. I'll tell you what went on in the fertile, dark corners of my All right, mind. All right, tell me. I want to know. a second there. Because, you know, normally you wouldn't do cartwheels down the aisle. What would make a cartwheel even Much more? Much less naked. Right, even more inappropriate would be naked cartwheels. So that was just, I like to use extreme examples to make the point. However, but then I started thinking, hmm, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden with God, and they were happy without shame, right? Mm -hmm. This is naked without shame. This is theology of the body. And so they had to go hide themselves once they had eaten of the tree. So um, at the end times, when we're in heaven, we can be naked without shame again, and we'd be so happy that we might be doing cartwheels in heaven in a liturgical sense. Do you have to know how to do a cartwheel on earth in order to do one in heaven? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. But um, the point is... All that went through my mind, like, well, <laughs> I'm not really sure that they're not doing naked cartwheels in heaven. I don't know if they are, but if they are, they are doing them perfectly. And what's great about it, first of all, it's funny. And second of all, it makes a lot of sense, and it's probably true. Sometimes I'm funny, uh, but when I am funny, it's usually funny with some serious um, substance behind it. Uh, and then this class, uh, you said something that I found very interesting when you were kind of analyzing. Oh, I finally got one interesting thing in. <laughs> this is the only thing you've ever said that oh, interests me. Oh, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. He said one funny thing. I'm from New York, you know. Um, you were talking about uh, Pluto and Aristotle and their... You mean Plato? Did I just say you that? You said Pluto. That's a dog from Disney or well, Planet. Joke's on you because yeah. I can mm -hmm. edit this out. Pl no, don't. <laughs> The Plutonian versus the that's Aristotelian person. That's why I messed up, because I was trying to say Plutonian, <laughs> and then I didn't know Aristotelian, Attilian, and then I didn't want to mess that up, so I just, I'm an idiot. This is why we keep you around. <laughs> well, thank you. Pluto. So that you guys could feel more intelligent. But there's also Bluto from Popeye. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Bluto. Bluto is a, is a thug. Mm -hmm. Pluto is a dog and also a planet. Plato. It's an ancient Greek philosopher. And Play-Doh is awesome. Play-Doh is something else, yeah. I thought that was Play-Doh when Play -Doh. people were talking about Play-Doh. Anyway, what, is your, what, what well, was I, your interesting thing? Uh, if you could just, you know, extrapolate from that lecture what you kind of were talking about, the direction, uh, the, the orientation of, you know, intent in sacred art or beauty from those two perspectives, because they're different. Yes, this is a, a classic archetypal way of understanding the world. <clears throat> that are both right in some degree, but it's how you choose to emphasize. So God breaks into the world and goes, boom, let me tell you something. Let me reveal something about myself to you. So Paul on the road to Damascus. That's how I enter a room. Well, there you go. Oh, Jesse's here. <laughs> and boy, do we know it, right? <laughs> we don't have to intuit by looking around the room like Jesse's. I'm like Kool-Aid. Dirty like socks. Kool-Aid man. The, you know, so just, you could, how oh, do you yeah. know if someone's around? Well, you, just, you can either look around for their dirty socks, right? You look around your world and you act and work up into what the fullness of that reality is. Or that reality just shows up and you try to render it present in the world. So in the Eastern Christian tradition, they often say they have a platonic emphasis. So they have this heavenly sense that every, how everything should be done. And that is what is brought into our world through the material things that we use. You know, incense investments and architecture and gold and stained glass and all that stuff. Then there's the other side, which is, let's look around and see where God's present in creation. And if I understand a flower and a bird and a fish and a person and a tree, then I'll come to know the whole of God. It's called abstraction. Mm -hmm. So you see lots of examples, and then you abstract out the essential. 
where in the Platonic tradition, the essential is kind of known, and then we have to render it present. Somewhere they meet in the middle, but it's an emphasis sort of bottom-up, so the creation reveals God, or God shows up and reveals himself, and then creation has to conform to it. And the Western church would tend to be Aristotelian rather than Platonic, and Mm -hmm. the Eastern church, they say they're Platonic rather than Aristotelian. I tend to lean more towards Aristotelian just because it plays to the logical part of my brain and, it, and that kind of is a natural process for it's just to see something and then to analyze and then to have a have a corresponding result of what what we think mm-hmm. and they both work right you have to know what's heaven in order to make a rendition of heaven whether, and whether you look around the earth and find it or whether it comes to you in a flash of understanding or revelation or scripture either way you have to know my favorite word there, ontology. ontology. Right? So one is finding the ontological reality by looking at all the little bits of ontology on the earth. The other is having some kind of big, deep sense of what that ontology is and then trying to render it present in little bits and uh, pieces you know, as you make it. Would you say that this kind of correlates with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? And so that the Old Covenant was like a top-down God, I am God, I am who am, and then... We have Jesus Christ, which is kind of the bottom-up, like he's showing us all these things that then lead up to God. In a way, they're both right, but you know, remember, Jesus said, he who sees me sees the Father, right? So this is a great revelation. This is the breaking in here. I am God, and I'm with you, and I'm going to tell you all the things you could not know otherwise, that there's a trinity and that you know, I will die on a cross and all that stuff. So Christ is always a revelation that breaks into our world. That's the nature of uh, faith. And in fact, you know, there's a classic discussion about Athens versus Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is... There is? (laughs) This is not something I'm aware of. Yeah, well, it goes way back to the early church that... um, This is like Packers versus Bears? Kind of, yeah. Except Jerusalem, you know, is the place of God's revelation, right? He chooses the chosen people. He tells them he's God. He tells them what they should be. Do this, do this, do this, right? God breaks in and tries to form them. In Athens, you know, the Greek tradition of philosophy, they're kind of like, hmm, what do we know? How can we work up to find out what justice is based on what we see, just acts? And so they tease it all out of human reason and human intellect. And so reason kind of works up where the, you know, that's the Greek tradition, the philosophical tradition, where the Jerusalem tradition was God showed up and said, this is who I am, I am who I am, and this is what you should be. And somewhere they meet in Christianity, you know, Paul goes to Greece and he talks to the Areopagus and says, hey, guess what? You're people who think about stuff. Let me tell you, here's the revelation that completes mm. all the stuff you think about. So in a good Catholic tradition, we do both of these things. We're Aristotelian and Platonic. We're rational and we have faith. In fact, I just heard Bishop Barron talking about this yesterday. Who's that? Bishop Robert Barron. Oh, oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, he uh, gave a talk at Amazon's headquarters recently, and it, they just put it on their podcast. He was talking about this very and thing. And it was amazing, amazing. It was Amazonian. <laughs> oh. Yeah, amazing and Amazonian. Um, and he talks about the point that faith is not uh, ir- irrational, but faith is that which is beyond reason that you choose to accept based on all the re- rational things. So the example he gave was very good. He said, um, you know, if you meet someone... You kind of look at them, you see what they look like, they talk, you see what they're wearing, they do things for you. Eventually you realize, hmm, I kind of know something about this person, and you know them for a couple of years, then you know more and more. It's all reason. Like, what have I sensed with my senses? What seems logical? And then, you know, like a spouse decides to reveal something deep, you know, about themselves to you that you could never have known from reason. So they tell you something tragic from their history or how much they love you or whatever. That you choose. Which, in my case, is tragic. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
then you have to choose, do I believe this person or not? And that belief is based on, in many ways, all the other things that you've studied about them. Are they reasonable? Are they trustworthy? Do they lie to me in the past? That's all sense data. But then to choose to believe is not irrational, but is actually beyond reason and dependent in some sense on your ability to reason. So thanks, Bishop Barron, for that. So what does that mean practically? Like if, if you are a sacred artist when you're making something and you're looking at these two philosophies and trying to understand beauty, what does that mean for the average person who's either making something or trying to interpret something that's been already created um, in a church, something like that? Well, the idea that there is an existing reality beyond us we have no idea for sure. That's a big step for first step for some people, I would say. Right. And if you're Paul on the road to Damascus and God shows up and boom, flash of lightning, you go blind and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then you don't know what's happened. But so and you're like, my name's not Paul, it's Jesse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, something's happened, right? You don't know what. So you have that moment where you say, I now know through sense experience that there's something beyond me. That doesn't happen to most of us. We kind of have a sense like, could this really be all there is? Or when I've seen something beautiful, I know something happened to me, but I don't know what that thing is. And, you know, I had a flat Coke and then I had a fine wine and that was related, but something was better. You know, mm -hmm. could there be the perfect beverage of, you know, the heavenly yeah, feast? coffee. Coffee, right? So <laughs> coffee wakes me up, right? Yeah. So I know I can exist pre-coffee and post-coffee, right? But if there is a difference there, could I have the fullness of alert uh, Without needing coffee. Could, right. And so maybe there Ooh. is something beyond that. It's at the level of the infinite. Or I I'm, want that, whatever I, it is. I love flat Coke. I love Kevin. I love uh, you. Yeah, I, kinda, <laughs> I tolerate you. You just said I was your buddy. Oh, you're my buddy. That's right. Um, but could you say, well, if I can love this, and then I can love a spouse even more and love a child in a different way than something else, then there must be some kind of thing called love as a concept that's beyond me. And so an artist would have to say, all right, well, I'm going to paint a scene or carve a statue. I'm going to make this perfect rendition, not just of the most perfect person I've seen, but of some kind of perfection that I know could exist, but that I've never actually witnessed. Then you start getting into the field of platonic thinking, uh, either top down, I know what heaven is, let me render it, or I've seen so many things approaching perfection that I'm going to take the next step and go forward. Then you're talking Aristotelian thinking. In either case, it's trust in a belief that something that I haven't encountered actually exists, but it's always based on the fact that my mind says, that seems logical, that seems reasonable. The next step would be something even better, even beyond my sense experience. So we should always seek out like platonic relationships. Unless it's your theory wife. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose it's up to her. I don't know, if I were married to you, I'd seek out a platonic relationship, but what can I tell you? Yeah, most women say that about me, for sure. Um, okay, so we have this, I, we have this um, you know, heavenly reality that can be revealed to us, but then we can also deduce it in our everyday understanding mm -hmm. of creation. Yep. So when we're looking at something as sacred beauty, um, we can approach it in two ways. Is this correct? We could say this is something that is um, in its heavenly reality already, in its existence, and we can use both of those means to be able to interpret that. Or we can also create something that is earthly, but is approaching heavenly reality or you know, is on its way there. How would we differentiate those two? Well, the basic concept of heavenly reality is not something essentially different from what we are. It means, ooh, I like that. We brought to the fullness of what we ought to be. So 
uh, to bring up Bishop Barron again, I heard him use the example of a tooth with a cavity is not a different thing than a tooth without a cavity. It's a tooth that has less toothness, right? There's mm-hmm. a part of the tooth that's empty. And so it's lacking the fullness of tooth. So you say, well, here's a tooth with seven cavities in it. And now I've seen a tooth with six cavities. In it. How now, did you know one had seven? Did you do a cavity search? Oh, yes. A <laughs> cavity count. And then I had four cavities and they're like, well, I, I imagine there's a tooth out there with even fuller tooth in it that only has two cavities. Oh. And then I can imagine, although I've never seen one, I can imagine a fullness of tooth with no cavities. On the other hand, I could just stumble on a perfect tooth and be like, whoa, that's what mm-hmm. toothness is. Right? <laughs> toothness. <laughs> Toothiness. So um, that's just a sort of simple way to, to talk about it. But you can say, I've met people who really love each other. And they seem to show this fullness of love that maybe, you know, I don't love people well enough. And suddenly you see something more than yourself. And then you can imagine, well, God loves us even more perfectly than, you know, these these people have been married 70 years and understand each other and love each other. And you can imagine something beyond. It's a process, too, because even within one's own life, those things are continually renewed and revealed to them, like gradually, because most people are not like Paul and get hit with the, you know, beam of light and then totally, you know, meet God one-on-one. But even then, he still had to have faith and he still had to learn and grow. It wasn't like he was just... He had to figure out what happened to me, right? They led him away blind and he took days for, you know, for him to figure out what was going on and who was that. And and then we still tease it out. Why did God say, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of why are you persecuting the church? And Mm -hmm. so then you realize, oh, it's Jesus and the church is Jesus and the mystical body and Paul's part of it. And then he goes on writing about mystical body all the time, right? So he has this experience of something breaking in, and then he has to use all the human reason at his disposal and the knowledge of Scripture and everything to figure out what that was. And then he goes on and tells about it. So some people pit Plato, not Pluto, Plato. A Plato pit? A Plato against Aristotle. As I thought the, that was Plato's cave. Uh, that's a different, that is the same Plato. Oh, but, uh, all right. Um, but they're not enemies, right? They're just different ways of approaching the, the same, same thing. thing. Got it. Hmm. And where would you, I guess, plant your flag? I am a Pluristotelian. What? <laughs> oh, that just means you like both of them. I like both of them, yeah. I mean, I don't deny the value that, of creation to reveal by approaching you know, an abstraction or the perfect idea of a thing by looking at lots of examples. I know in my own life. I've looked at however many hundreds of thousands of churches, and eventually you sort of say, oh, the ideal church is whatever, even as you can see it in all of examples. So I'm not just waiting around for sitting in a dark room until, you know, some sort of spiritual UFO lands on my head and says, this is the best church, right? <laughs> but at the same time, you can kind of imagine, based on scripture and other things, what would it, what would a heavenly perfection be like? And how can I render that perfection on earth? So they do, uh, they do work together. I guess you need both because you know, things as they are, are fallen. So we don't have the completion of glory um, in them, like nature, ourselves. So we need that glory, but we don't know fullness of glory it just by itself because we know the fallen world. And so there mm-hmm. does need to be a place where those meet. Absolutely. And in the Platonic tradition, they call this idea of the perfect version of a thing the form. Right, so there's mm-hmm. triangleness, right? Even if you're not actually looking at an actual triangle drawn on paper, you can just think the concept triangle. Mm-hmm. How ev- obtuse of you? Yes, <laughs> bam. <laughs> but every triangle, every triangular thing that exists participates in this concept that has no particular existence, right? And so this relationship between 
concept, which is intangible, and then an actual thing, which you can touch or see with your senses, has this correspondence. And so in our um, Aristotelian tradition, we sort of think, okay, it's not so much the form, which is out there somewhere, we don't know where, but the mind of God has the perfect knowledge of something, and so our job is to say, okay, Holy Spirit, please reveal to me the mind of God somehow. And this is what an artist does in John Paul's letter to artists. He says this is a gift and, and in fact, a vocation to be able to see beyond the the Aristotelian world alone and have some sense of the platonic perfection, however you get there, and then come back and say, hey, world, guess what? This is the perfection. You should know it too. And I get to share it with you, carve it, paint it, whatever it is, make a mosaic. And, And that's a really important task. Notice what it's not, though. This is my feeling today. <laughs> I paint a blue picture. I do this. I do that. You know, I tie a bunch of sticks together and say it reminds me of X, Y, Z, and, and overlay some kind of lame narrative over it that all the people go, "Oh wow, that's so cool!" Right? Mm-hmm. Cool is not the same thing as I've reached into the heavenly future and used matter to reveal your own pl- perfection to you. That's a serious task compared to just doing whatever expression I feel like expressing that day. So okay, so if you have these, you know modern artists that are, you know, their, their art piece is a garbage can with some garbage in it and then some crumpled up papers around the garbage can. Like that's their art. That's a low end Aristotelian approach. But isn't, you, you talk about something being beautiful when it is what it is designed to be. So yes. if that's a, just a trash can and that's somebody's art installation, isn't that beautiful? Well, trash cans have trash can-ness. They have right? trashiness. They have, well, <laughs> well, trash has trashiness. Trash can has trash can. Got it. Caniness. <laughs> um, so if a thing is what it is and it reveals itself to you, then it has a, a certain amount of beauty. Here's the, here's the second part of that. Beauty is when a thing reveals what it is, but the degree of beauty which is a funny thing. We don't know how to talk mm-hmm. about that usually. It depends I on... I got a degree in beauty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it doesn't show. Um, but there's the, um, perfect, the proportional to its perfection in being, right? So anything beautiful... Beauty is an attribute of being, right? If something exists in a perfect way, in a beautiful way, it's called beautiful. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't exist, it can't be beautiful because it can't be. But if a thing has more potential to be fuller in its being... I mean, to have more being. So the tooth with no cavities has more tooth than a tooth with seven Mm -hmm. cavities, right? But a tooth can only have so much being because it's only a tooth compared to a plant or a person uh, or God, right? So God has perfect being. Oh, like the the potential, like life. Something living has more potential of fullness than something non-living. Is that what you're saying? Because it shares in God's own attributes. Got it. a human oh. being has intellect and will, right, that a rock doesn't have. Got it. Even though a rock has existence, it doesn't have as much existence or being, perfection of being as a person because a rock can't move, can't reproduce, doesn't have love, doesn't... So know, even like a terrible, will. terrible human being is still more beautiful than a perfect trash can. Pretty much, yeah. Whoa. Based on this system, right? <laughs> I, that is blowing my mind. And here right is now. why God is beauty itself, because God is the fullness of all those things, right? He, yeah. At the infinite level, he is being itself. He is intellect itself. He is will itself. He is love itself. He is goodness itself. He is justice itself, beauty itself. And so a rock will never have the same level of participation in any of those things as a person. Well, so now, if I ever feel bad having fallen in sin, I'll just be like, well, at least I'm not a trash can. At least I'm or a, a non Or <laughs> a non-living object. So this is the small glass, big glass discussion. So remember... St. Therese. It's a big glass question. Well, she, she, is, uh, 
She says she's happy to be a little flower, right? She's a little oh, flower. Oh, yeah. Now, she's not meant to be a big flower. So if she was trying to be a rose, she'd be trying to do something that God didn't want her to be, and she'd be unhappy. She said she's like a little violet in the field that nobody notices, but it has its own particular beauty. And so that's what she was happy to be that. Now, she said there are other saints who climb mountains and do all this other stuff. They're like bigger glasses, right? They hold more perfection mm-hmm. uh, in a sense than she thought she did. Um, but neither of them were unhappy, right? Because they each had the fullness according to the way God made them. I feel like a very small glass, like a thimble. Well, as long as it's full, <laughs> that's fine. It's only a problem if you know you're a big glass and you're only a little bit full. Yeah. So a person who acts like a beast, right? So this mm-hmm. is the 666, six, six, the sign of the beast, right? They're not filling up their glass with all the perfection. They should be own. a 1,000 beast. Well, they should be 777 or oh. eight, actually 888, right, for the eighth day, which is the day of Ooh. perfection. So God is saying, hey, humans, you're big glasses, and in your <laughs> fallenness, you're only a little bit full. Mm-hmm. And he shows up and he says, I want to fill you up. I'm going to give you a share in divine life so you can be like me. I've already given it to you because you have all intellect and will and love and locomotion and all that stuff. But I want you to now have it at the highest level. You know that phrase, um, I've come to give you life and life to the full. Oh, John 10, 10. So there you go. And people mm-hmm. say, oh, Christianity is limiting my freedom, whatever. Uh-uh. Nope. It is to give you the fullness of reality, mm-hmm. to rise up to that platonic potential as we think of it, but it's really a potential in the mind of God, precisely by knowing and delighting in the things of the world. Hmm. Well, Dennis, this has been delightful. I'm glad. You didn't even want to do this. I, yeah. I talked you into it. <laughs> That's not a lie. I was like, I wanted to uh, go edit your face for a while. Um, but, uh, oh, Chris, did you want to add anything to this? I am leaving in five minutes. Well, this is why we don't invite you to be part of the yeah, He's got talk. nothing to say. Yeah. Well... This is good. Thank you, listeners, for listening to us ramble yeah, about oh, whatever. Also, what? check out the classes online because yes. they're, um, they're really great. If this was intriguing in any way, imagine five hours of delightful stuff. Yeah, but yeah. you don't get the charming um, interruptions by Jesse Weiler. That's the one thing you don't get. True, but you can imagine it. But if you want to pay more, I'd be happy to edit in my own commentary during Dennis's class. That Veronica Vaughn, <laughs> she and I got... Oh, wait. That online course, I heard Jesse interrupting Charming. No, no, no you didn't. didn't. But you could imagine, imagine what it would be like. <laughs> All right, there you go. Billy Madison makes his entry. That's true. All right. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.